We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning. As we continue studying the latter part of Genesis and the life of Joseph, we read today of his reunion with his father. As we'll read in Genesis chapter 46, verses 28 through 34. This is God's holy word as he gave to Moses to write infallibly, the Lord superintending it so that every word, indeed every letter on the page was exactly what he wanted. Here, therefore, we have the inspired and therefore the inerrant word of the living God, Genesis 46, verses 28 through 34. This is speaking here of Jacob. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? that you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading, its exposition, and its hearing. The last time we noted that Jacob made his way with his family, from Canaan to Egypt, and that the Lord spoke to him along the way, saying, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Well, today's reading picks up where we left off last Sabbath. Uh, Jacob and his family are arriving in Egypt, coming into the land of Goshen in that northeast region of the country, uh, just as Joseph had previously encouraged them to do. And the Lord has been faithful, of course, to this point. And we see Joseph acting wisely also in accord with his knowledge of the Lord's faithfulness as he engineers the settlement of his family in Goshen. From Joseph's wise actions, we and his words also, we uh, learn several applications. First, the importance of the unity of God's people. The joyful reunion of Jacob with his beloved son illustrates that importance of the unity of God's people, as does Joseph's careful planning regarding his family's settlement. And that teaches us, secondly, to plan wisely. Uh, Joseph considers both the 
promises of God and the character of mankind as he makes his plans. Uh, Which leads to our third application, God's people are to keep separate from the world. We need not live in communities of our own apart from everyone else. Indeed, that would actually needlessly complicate our fulfillment of the Great Commission. But God's people must be distinct from the culture of the fallen world around them. It is God's command that we be different than the world. And fourth, expect that the Lord will keep his promises. He is faithful. This is a major theme of the book of Genesis. And so, because we know God is faithful, live in expectation of God keeping his promises. Plan and act accordingly to the fact that God is a faithful God who keeps his promises. Well, as the house of Israel arrives in Egypt in this passage, indeed, they're in the land of Goshen, the part of Egypt nearest to Canaan, Uh, Moses tells us, Then he, that is Jacob, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen, and they came to the land of Goshen. Again, we see that Judah has become the clear leader in the family. His three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, have been passed over for that leadership role by their father for reasons that he'll state in chapter 49. So, Lord willing, when we get there, I'll explain that more in more detail. Uh, so, Jacob is entrusting Judah with leadership responsibilities here. And that trust has clearly uh, been reinforced uh, by the fact that Judah has kept his word to Jacob previously to return Benjamin safely to his father. And so, Jacob's confidence in Judah's leadership is probably bolstered now. So as the family that's maybe numbering uh, nearly or maybe even past 100 individuals, if we, we, as we considered last time, we know that maybe some of the individuals in the list weren't actually quite born yet, uh, but uh, others, of course, we consider the, can be added if we consider the wives of the sons of Jacob and maybe even some older grandsons who might be old enough to be married now. We, there may be more than 100 of them coming at this point, and then, of course, they would have had servants and other household people attached to their household coming. This large group of people arrives now in Goshen. Judah goes on ahead, essentially, to get Joseph and bring him to their father. Joseph takes his chariot, which, as we saw before, would have been Pharaoh's second chariot. Such a mode of transportation would have been both a fast means of getting to his father, which we can see his eagerness to see his father again, but it's also a status symbol. It gets Joseph to his father faster, but it also displays his rank in Egyptian society. If we might think of of a a really expensive sports car or something that people use today as a status symbol. That would be something like this. If you also added to it the fact that that sports car also could convert into a tank and and be used as as a weapon of war because uh, chariots were great weapons of war that day and, and very few people had chariots. It was only an elite group among the military and the nobility. And so Joseph 
is showing his status here as well. And so he makes haste to see his father. And when he arrives, they embrace, we're told, they even weep. As Moses writes, so Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. By the way, we also note that though Joseph is in this extreme position of authority, second only to the Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, he is actually, the fact that Moses says he presents himself to a father, that's, that's a statement that says that he understands his father is superior to him. So though his father is coming there to be succored, to be uh, sheltered by his son in this position of authority, uh, the son is still giving respect to his father as the one who has senior authority. But we're told that they wept for a long time, as you might imagine. I think of times when I've been just out for a day or away overnight. I have to be away overnight coming up here a couple nights uh, for Presbytery. Recently we had a meeting uh, close enough that I was able to to stay away over only one night and then come back the next evening and got home in time to uh, put the girls to bed. And these little girls, when I've been away for just an afternoon perhaps, but uh, certainly overnight, they'll, they'll cling to me and they don't want to let go Right when I get back home. It's hard to extricate myself. You can only imagine, uh, just that, that's just got to be a smidgen of what Jacob and Joseph were feeling at this time and how they were clinging to one another, weeping on one another, so grateful to be able to see each other again. 22 years of separation and finally they are reunited. Jacob, or as God has renamed him Israel, uh, says in verse 30, Now let me die. Now let me die, he says, right? Since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Uh, it's basically a way of saying, he's not saying I hope I can die in the next moment. What he's saying is, now that I've seen you again, I can die happy. Now that I've seen you again, I can die happy. Now he'll actually live another 17 years, we'll find. Rather like his father who seems to think he's on his deathbed and lives decades beyond that. Here, Jacob is, as he'll admit, upcoming here, we'll see, as he'll admit before Pharaoh, I'm I, I've, essentially what he says is, I'm old and decrepit now. Few and evil have been my days. But he'll get another 17 years here. And this reminds us of the importance, this reunion of Jacob and Joseph and their weeping in one another's arms. It reminds us of the importance of the unity, the bond of unity among Christ's people. Whatever has separated us, whether by our choices or by circumstances out of our control, whether the separation is literal or figurative, whether physical or emotional, uh, when brethren are reunited in God's sight, that is an occasion for joy. And notice I said reunited in God's sight. Uh, I'm not talking about when professing believers come together uh, having compromised truth and righteousness and then rejoice in that. No, uh, so many church unions have been accomplished that way, sadly, 
in the name of healing divisions in Christ's visible church, which are a, a consequence of error and sin and the, short, uh, the, the short-sightedness of man. Some Christians have seen that as rightly it's a problem. We see the fractured nature of, of the visible church uh, today. And to heal that have been willing, many have been willing to compromise on doctrines which really should not be negotiable. And that's how you get the denomination I left or the United Churches of Christ. Uh, uh, churches like that. With church union that not only happened when or that only happened when truth was compromised. And the result has been not healing of true divisions in the visible church, but the actual breaking of those denominations, the apostasy of those denominations, that what began as an attempt ostensibly to strengthen the church through reunion has in many cases resulted in churches becoming no church at all. But when brothers and sisters in Christ are truly united on God's truth, that is an occasion for great joy. Though the reasons for their separation were vastly different, uh, Jacob and the father of the prodigal son shared that joy. We read earlier that parable. A son who for all purposes has been dead is now alive again. Jacob believed Joseph to be dead for 22 years. And now here he sees him alive. It's as if he rose from the dead. What joy we should have in that. We should have that kind of joy in the unity of the church. Such unity is commanded by Christ and his apostles. Peter says of the church in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, You are a chosen generation. I should stop there and just note that for those of you who have been in Sabbath school, the adult class recently, and we were talking about the uh, word or listening to uh, R.C. Sproul talk about the, the word generation as it appears in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus says uh, these things will come to pass in this generation, this generation shall not pass away. Uh, that word is a different word that's, than the one that's used here in the Greek. It's a related word, genea uh, versus genos, but uh, the, the word that's used here means a people group. You are a chosen people group. <laughs> you are a chosen nation. It could be translated. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So we who are in Christ are one nation, Peter tells us, one people of God. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 20, Paul writes, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he pleased. And 
If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. So Paul tells us there are many members of Christ's church, just like there are many members, body parts of your body, each with different gifts and functions, but each is a part of the same body. Because of that unity, it's wrong for a body part to think that all should be like it. For if your whole body were just eyes, how would you hear? He says. It's also wrong of any body part to say either, I am not a part of the body. Like he says, the foot can't can't say, even if the foot says I'm not a part of the body, that doesn't make it not a part of the body. It still is. Or, nor can we say, I don't need the other body parts. That also is sin. It's sin to think that we can go it alone. We need one another in the church. When we try to go it alone, not only are we denying ourselves the gifts and the the functions of the other body parts, but we're denying our gifts and functions to the rest of the body. This is a grave matter. Paul likewise says in Romans 12, 4 through 8, For as as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same functions, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching... He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There is a diversity of gifts and functions, but a oneness, a unity of the body of Christ, the church. Jesus prayed in John 17, verses 20 and 21, I do not pray for these alone, he's not only praying for the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of the church is is one of the ways that we testify to the world of the reality of what Christ has done. Joseph intends to keep the people of Israel the visible church of his day, unified. And he takes measures to that end. His wise planning helps in that regard. He has already told his brothers he intends for them to settle in the land of Goshen. He has the authority to settle them there. Only Pharaoh could possibly gainsay Joseph's plans and override his intentions here. Now, Pharaoh has already said they could have the, quote, best of the land. But to make sure they settle in Goshen as Joseph desires, he tells his brothers, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. As we've noted before, Egyptians of that era found shepherds 
to be abhorrent. And this played well into Joseph's plans, and he makes use of that fact. It would be accomplished, at least, uh, it would accomplish, rather, I should say, at least two things. It would assure Pharaoh and his court that Joseph's family would not be able to ride Joseph's coattails to power in Egypt and displace other people in power. In order to be accepted into Egyptian high society, they would have to give up their occupation. But by honestly and openly declaring that they were shepherds, they were effectively barring themselves from any high offices in government. And that would have reassured people who were working alongside of and really under Joseph in the government there. Also, it would mean that they would live apart from the Egyptians, isolated away from their pagan society. That's really the more important accomplishment here. This would keep Israel religiously pure and keep them distinct as a people group. They would not intermingle with the Egyptians to such a degree as to be absorbed into their society and disappear as a unique people, as a distinct people. Likewise, we should plan wisely. It was by his wise planning that Joseph uh, helped keep Israel intact as a nation. We see from Joseph's example then that wise planning involves being aware of what God promises and what he has commanded. And also being aware of how mankind might behave and plan accordingly. He realized that, well, if we are honest and say, well, my family's all shepherds, then that's going to help accomplish this goal. Joseph here deals shrewdly with Pharaoh, uh, not in an unjust way, he's not deceiving him, but he is making sure that Pharaoh will be aware of the reasons that it would be wise to keep Israel apart from the Egyptians. That planning will have the result of guarding God's people from unrighteous participation in a pagan society. Joseph intends to keep the church of his day separate and distinct from the world around it. That was appropriate in his time, as the visible church and the nation of Israel were one and the same. If someone was to join the visible church, they had to be joined to Israel from outside, and we do find examples of that in the Old Testament scriptures, of that happening. But in our day, in the New Covenant era, such a geographical isolation would actually be an obstacle to our obeying the commands of Christ, uh, fulfilling his command to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. It's kind of hard if you all just stay in one place together. But while we ordinarily should not be geographically separated from the world, we must be culturally, morally, and spiritually distinct from unbelievers around us. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So there he's pointing out that we can't go out of the world. We uh, Christians are to live in the world, but we're to be something different from it. And so 
It's when someone called by the name of a brother, someone who's a member of the church, does these things that then we enact discipline. We need not go out of the world and end all interaction with people who openly sin. That would make our goal of preaching the gospel to them impossible, but we do need to be distinct from them. The people around you should be able to see clear differences between how you live and the way a heathen on your street lives. Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If we, in other words, just taste like everything else around us, what good are we? In John 17.14-16, he's praying, I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus wants you to be in the world, but not of the world. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says something similar when he writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Joseph's planning is helping in his age to do that. It kept God's people distinct from the world. But his planning also expected that the Lord would keep his promises. The Lord had told Abraham in Genesis 15 and verses 13 and 14, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And in verse 16 of Genesis 15, he says, In the fourth generation they shall return here. Joseph's expecting those things to happen. Likewise, he's told Jacob, just as we saw in the last uh, chapter, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. Positioning Israel in the land of Goshen expects those promises to come true. It not only gives them good grazing lands for their flocks and their herds, and not only does it keep them intact and distinct from the people of Egypt and from their idolatry, it also puts them in the part of Egypt that's actually nearest the land of Canaan. No doubt Joseph is planning for a quick removal of Israel back to Canaan. Uh, Though events in God's providence will unfold rather differently, they won't just pack up and and head up the road into Canaan. This does show that Joseph expects God's promises to be kept. The Lord is going to fulfill what he has promised. Joseph knows God is faithful, and so he plans accordingly. Recognize the importance of the unity of God's people. Plan wisely. Be aware of God's promises. Be mindful of and obedient to his righteous commands. And be aware of how fallen men and women might react to your desire for godliness. Sometimes they don't react very well, which is not surprising. Jesus said that's how it would happen. Think of how they might react to situations around you. Plan accordingly. Keep separate from the world. You don't have to be physically separate, but be morally separate. Be spiritually separate from the idolatrous culture around you. We don't 
uh, have, though it seems like there are growing cases of more blatant idolatry, we may not, may not have the blatant idolatry uh, that Egypt had where you see statues of gods everywhere you turn. But there are plenty of things that people idolize. And we need to keep separate from that. Be distinct in the way you behave. You must appear different than the wicked culture around you. Such distinctiveness is an outward manifestation of a a spiritual reality that God already counts you as separate in Christ from the fallen world. When we talk about the fractured unity of God's church, we know that there is still a true spiritual unity of all who are believing in Christ. We just want to see it more reflected in what is visible. And likewise, the distinctiveness, the distinction between you as a believer and an unbeliever next door should be apparent in the fallen world. Lastly, expect that God will keep His promises. He is faithful. Again, that's one of the major themes of the book of Genesis. God is faithful. When He says something will be, it will be. If you truly believe that fact, then it will affect how you live and act, especially in light of being distinct from the world and the kinds of treatment you might receive because of that. You may find yourself threatened with punishment for obeying God. That's, I was praying earlier, that's becoming a very clear reality in our neighbor country to the north. In Canada, it's, it's very true now that to proclaim the whole counsel of God's word, particularly in regard to uh, the ethics of marriage, who you can marry, uh, same-sex attraction and things like that, when we teach that, that the Lord says that we are to leave these things behind, well, they can consider that now conversion therapy in Canada, and that's outlawed. So asking someone as you share the gospel with them to, okay, when you believe in Christ, then you have to leave these things behind. That's really against the law in Canada now. So you may find yourself, that may be the case here at some point, you might find yourself threatened with punishment for obeying God. Well, so what? He's faithful. He promises to raise you up and reward you. Even if they were to kill you for your faithfulness, your blood is precious in his sight and he will glorify you. Nothing can separate you, he says, from his love in Christ. If you believe that, what have you to fear from those who might kick you out of college, fire you, or even kill you for obeying the Lord and refusing to obey the unrighteous commands of man. Expect that God will keep his promises. He will. And so act accordingly. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the unity of your church, its true spiritual unity, and pray that we might display it and rejoice in it all the more. Grant that we might plan wisely We ask that your spirit would keep us distinct from the world, that we might be seen to be your people, and that he would strengthen our faith, 
that we might live in expectation of your promises being fulfilled. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.